We have been on a teaching series that we just began on the, sub, the topic, rather, excuse me, of community. We're talking about the art of community, the ability for a group of people like this to create genuine connections with each other by the Spirit of God. And what we've been looking at to help sort of guide our thinking is the book of Acts, chapter 2. We began with Pentecost last week, which is, of course, the celebration at the beginning of Acts, chapter 2, when the church was born, when the church was birthed. And we read that odd passage where the disciples are gathered in what's called the upper room, and they're waiting. Remember, they're confused, they're frustrated, they're disoriented because Christ has gone away. Christ was risen into heaven, and even before that, when Christ was appearing to them, it was sort of intermittent, and they often didn't recognize Jesus. There was this real sense that something had changed after the death and resurrection of Christ. Jesus leaves them and says, wait, because I'm going to be sending a helper. I'm going to be sending the Holy Spirit to you. So they wait. And 50 days later, Pentecost happens. And we see this bizarre sort of scene where what the scripture describes in Acts chapter 2 is that tongues of fire come from heaven and a light on everybody's head. And then something really odd happens. And that's what we're going to read today. So it's Acts chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 4, which is where we left off last week. We actually read verse 4 last week, so you're not going to see it up here. This is going to start in verse 5, but I wanted to back up one passage so that you could hear this. It says, All of them, that is the disciples, disciples, were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Verse 5. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem, and at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Let's pause there for a second. I mentioned this last week, but what's going on is this is the Feast of Pentecost, one of the most important feasts in all of Judaism. And the Jews are scattered throughout what's called the diaspora. That is, the Jewish people, the ethnic group, have been scattered around the ancient world. And oftentimes they come back from wherever they have been. And they weren't there for like, you know, a year or two years or 10 years. They've been there for generations wherever they've come from. So they could be coming from Egypt and very much identify as Egyptian Jews. And then coming back to Israel to celebrate Pentecost as Egyptian Jews speaking the language of Egypt. And so essentially what you have during Pentecost is a a regathering of Jews from all over the ancient world. But they are all, for, for all intents and purposes, foreigners and strangers in their own ancient native land and speaking different languages. So this is why in verse 4, it says that the Holy Spirit, when it came down like fire upon all of the disciples, that they were filled by the Spirit and able to speak in other languages. Because as it turns out, all of those gathered for Pentecost are bewildered because now they're hearing the disciples speaking in their own tongue, their own language. Okay, are you with me? Some of you are having a hard time listening because you're like, hearkening back to your Pentecostal days when you were told that tongues was something different. I know, that's me too. I spent the better part of my 20s in a deeply Pentecostal church where well-meaning people prayed fervently over me so that I could pray in some strange language that sounded alien so that I could be closer to God. All right, little secret. Don't tell anybody I said this. 
This includes those of you who are watching live on Facebook. I can speak in tongues in that way. I don't know that I even believe in it anymore, but I can do it. And it actually is kind of fun. <laughs> I don't even have an explanation for that. But that's really not what this passage is about. So if that's you too, if you were exposed to a kind of Pentecostalism where some elder spent, you know, hours praying over you so that you could burst forth in some sort of unintelligible ecstatic language, I want you to recognize the deep irony of that. It's ironic because what happened to me is that somebody prayed for me that I could speak in an unintelligible language so that I could be part of the inside group. So I could be part of the club. So I could literally speak the language and be a part of an insider group. And that feeling of being a part of an insider group is deeply pleasurable. There's a reason why we have tendencies towards tribalism as human creatures. It's because we like being in when everybody else is out. That is deeply ironic because what's happening in the book of Acts is not that people are learning to speak a language so they can be a part of the in-group. What's happening is the eradication of a notion of an in-group. The disciples are being empowered to speak other languages so that those who are excluded by the barrier of language can now be included. What's happening here is not the formation of a special group of people who belong only to each other. What's happening is that special group of people is being blown up, and those who didn't have access to it now have access to it. I'm going to prove that to you in just a moment, the very best of my ability, if you believe me. But before we get there, let me just read a little bit more. Verse 6, so at this town, the crowd gathered, and they were bewildered because each one of them heard speaking in the native language of each person, amazed and astonished. They asked, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we are hearing them in our language? And then it goes on. We're not going to dwell on the list of places that these folks are from, but look down at verse 12. It says, all were amazed and perplexed, saying one to another, what does it mean? And others sneered and said they're filled with new wine. In other words, the explanation for this bizarre event whereby everybody can hear in their own language, whereby everybody can understand each other, the explanation is these disciples are drunk. Seems plausible. But Peter, verse 14, stands up and says, no, the... The issue here is not that they're drunk. The issue is something else entirely. Before we get into that, I want to remind you that what's happening in this passage is an expression of power. Here's what I mean by that. Last week, I told you that in the ancient world, that fire is a symbol of power. It's a symbol of empowerment. And we know that this is not just a, a Jewish concept. I mean, if you think about just Greek mythology, right, and the story of Prometheus, what's happening there is Prometheus is stealing the power of the gods and giving it to humanity. And that power is fire. And the great lesson of the story of Prometheus, of course, is exactly the same lesson as the story of the Lord of the Rings. 
which is that power is as useful as it is dangerous. It's a little bit like our you know, conversations today about guns or nuclear proliferation. Power can be extraordinarily useful, extraordinarily beneficial, but it also can be very dangerous if used poorly. Well, in the ancient Jewish literature, that power, that sense that we have the ability to accomplish something great is symbolized as God, as God's presence. And I told you that, you know, the story of the burning bush where Moses sees the bush burning but not being consumed and the story of fire accompanying the Israelites through the desert by night and all of these images of fire, including Acts chapter 2, are symbols of how the power of God is present to help us accomplish something good, not something destructive. So what is it that's being accomplished here? Let's look back at the passage, Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Peter says to the crowd who are bewildered, no, no, we're not drunk. We haven't been drinking. It's far too early in the morning for that. Verse 17, he says, this is just like the prophet Joel declared. In the last days it will be God declares that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Kind of people that are right, not the kind of people who align with me politically, not the kind of people who love the sorts of folks that I approve of, but all people. Peter says what's happening here, what you see happening, is a fulfillment of this prophecy that I will pour out my flesh upon all spirit, or excuse me, my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now, in churches like this, it's so easy to be distracted by the weird stuff. Right? like the tongues and the prophecy and the visions, that we miss what's really happening here. What's really happening is that sons and daughters are no longer excluded from the power of God. What's happening here is that old men and women are no longer excluded from the power of God, that slaves are no longer excluded from the power of God. What happens in Acts chapter 2 is nothing less than an eradication of those barriers that we have a tendency to erect. And this should not be a surprise. For any of us who are paying attention to the Hebrew Bible or to the teachings of Jesus, it is deeply steeped in welcoming those who are different than us. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, it says, You are to love the foreigner, for you yourselves were once foreigners in Egypt. The gospel is about welcoming people who are different than we are because we were once excluded somewhere, somehow, by somebody for being different. Matthew 25, Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed this is deeply embedded in the gospel, welcoming those who are the other. 
We are surrounded by strangers. Look around. You don't know each other. You don't know what strange or bizarre things the person sitting next to you watches on Netflix. <laughs> Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor living in Germany in World War II. He was adamantly fighting against Hitler and the Nazi party. He wrote a book called Life Together, and in it, he says this in very harsh terms. Now, I want you to hear this, but also recognize what he's saying. He says, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. For this cause, he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christians, too, belong not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, his work. The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be part of the kingdom of Christ. Listen, when Bonhoeffer is talking about being in the midst of enemies, he is not talking about Muslims or atheists or agnostics or Buddhists. He is talking about other Christians. His context was Christians who supported Hitler. And he fought against them. But he understood that people who considered themselves to be a part of the same tribe often were set at enmity with each other, and the gospel was about bringing understanding so that we could be at peace. Acts chapter 2 is about understanding. It's about the power of God to come and inspire us to learn each other's language so that we don't kill each other. And I am not speaking metaphorically. The great gospel singer, black activist, and scholar Bernice Johnson Reagan said it like this. There is nowhere you can go and be with people who are only like you. Give it up. She was talking about this understanding in political mo movements of the difference between home and coalition. And she said, when we are in coalition together to accomplish good things, we are united with people who want to kill us. She was speaking as a black, queer, woman, feminist who was joined with others for the purpose of bringing civil rights. She said, this is not comfortable. Coalition is not comfortable. It's not where we go to be well-fed and grow fat and be nurtured at a nipple and so that we can feel good for the rest of our days. She said, that's home. We go home for that. Some of y'all want to go home when you come to church. This church especially is a kind of coalition. And I think that's the gospel. Amen. I think that when we're willing to be in relationship, 
with people who see the world differently than us. If we have any glimmer, any hope, any sliver of understanding for each other, that's the power of God in your life doing it. This is a matter of life and death. It, it, it really is a matter of life and death. In 1970, a Catholic Monsignor whose first name was Michael, I won't share his last name, left the priesthood. He was a Monsignor in San Diego County. He was one of the founding Catholic priests of the University of San Diego. He presided over the memorial service for John F. Kennedy at San Diego Stadium. He left the priesthood in 1970 to become the pastor of a tiny little church at the corner of Freeman and Topeka in Oceanside. He ceased to be Monsignor Michael and became Reverend Michael and pastored this church right here for about six months. At the end of that six months, he was found one morning, dead, washed up on the shores of the beach in Carlsbad. He had left a note that said that he just could no longer live the way that he had been living. And so on that night, he walked into the ocean and died. And that note was found by his longtime partner, who was the male priest at the Episcopal Church in Carlsbad. Reverend Michael spent decades of his life as a closeted gay man in a church that refused to celebrate him, that would not make space for his relationships, that first led him to leave his faith behind and pastor a tiny little church in Oceanside, but ultimately led him to take his own life because of the enormous pressure to conform and to deny who he really was. That's part of this church's legacy. We do what we do here today, partly because it's the gospel, because it means being faithful to the gospel. But ultimately, we do it to save lives. Because no child, no man, no woman, no non-binary person should ever have to grow up in a congregation that tells them that God loves them a little less because of who they are. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you again for today. We thank you for this opportunity to celebrate our siblings in Christ who are a part of the LGBTQ community. We thank you because these words in this ancient library of Scripture offer us powerful testimony to how your spirit opens new possibilities for how your spirit like a fire is empowering us to bridge the divide, to eradicate judgment, 
to welcome those who are strangers and aliens to us, whoever we might be, to eliminate those barriers that cause us to justify our bigotry and hatred and even our violence. We ask God that you would break open those boundaries and barriers in our hearts that cause us to to judge and exclude and to justify violence. We pray that you do a good work in us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys so much. Very quickly, if you like what's happening here, if you like what's going on at the Oceanside, we have a couple more ways for you to help. The first is we have a very exciting webinar coming up called Shameless Parenting starting June 15th at 6.30 p.m. That's this Wednesday. Today, you heard a lot of stories of people experiencing shame. Sometimes the hope is that with this webinar, <laughs> with this webinar that we can hopefully change that narrative for people out there. So join us that, please. It's very, very important. Next up, we have a nature gathering coming up on June 25th. Some of us were at the first one. It was a lot of fun. Our next one is going to be at Guajome. These are some pictures from the previous one. This is just a chance to commune in nature, commune with each other, find out what God is speaking to you in a setting possibly outside of this building. And lastly, our annual congregational meeting is happening June 26th. That's Sunday right after church. You guys, we don't do things without your feedback, without your direction. We thrive, we engage in these issues because you tell us to. So this meeting's very important. We're gonna vote on the budget, new board members in our new direction. Lastly, it's June. This is our annual membership drive. If you got the program, uh, when you walked in on the back, there's a spot for you to write in what we're about to ask you to do. And that is simply, we are about to build our new budget. And very simply, we just ask you to let us know what you think you may be able to give to us this year. So that helps us build our budget, that helps us continue the work we're doing, and it gives us a better perspective on how to keep doing the great work that we're doing here. So please do that for us. We've got prizes and hats and books and mugs and all that depending on your giving level as well. And lastly, I just want to say thank you for all of you. Thank you for this beautiful uh, service. Man, we're all a mess today, aren't we? <laughs> Lord. <laughs> Don't start, Alex. <laughs> but. But I want to I wanna say something, and that is pride is a celebration. Amen? Pride is a celebration. So I don't want any of us to leave today not celebrating the fact that we can be proud of who we are, whatever that means. 
that many of us have been shamed into not thinking that we can be this or that or that or that other thing. And I just want to end that here today. And so before you leave today, I want you to leave and just think of one thing that you are proud of. One thing that makes you proud about yourself. One thing that makes you proud in the sense that God designed you this way. I want you to leave knowing what that is. I want you to tell someone when you leave today. And I want you to just think about that all week long. May the peace of God be with you. We'll have tacos after that. And also with you. Thank you. Amen.